Sorry, I, I should explain. I want us to do a task analysis, okay? So I want to know the steps to brushing your teeth. So can somebody tell me what the first step to brushing your teeth is? You don't have to raise your hand. I, I, I knew one of you duteous students would raise your hand. I just want you to shout it out. What is, work as a group, the first step to brushing your teeth? Okay, maybe we do need to raise our hand. Because <laughs> I went like this, I'm like, uh, uh. Okay, so let's, let's go back to raising our hand since clearly I didn't know what I was thinking. Um, what's the first step to brushing our teeth? You have to, wait, I like that. I've never heard that answer before. You have to have teeth. Okay, that's not where I was going, but you win. You win. Wow. <laughs> Now that we've established that Kirtan a one, because I was not going there, and that will always stay in my heart and my memory forever. Raise your hand. What is the first step to brushing your teeth? Yes, Lord. Go in the bathroom and pick up your toothbrush. Mm. Is that safe? Is that a good first answer? Beyond you have to have teeth. Is that good? Go in the bathroom, Bob. Yes. Deciding you have to, I, I love that. He said that with authority. You, you were about to preach this, deciding. <laughs> Whew, got churchy real fast. Okay. What else? Anybody? Yeah, Will. I was just going to say similar. <clears throat> Ooh, <laughs> assess the situation. <sighs> Wives are good at helping with that, right? Like, they're like, baby, mm -mm, don't kiss me right now. Mm -mm, no, no. All right, so we have to go in the bathroom and grab the toothbrush. We have to decide to brush our teeth. We need to assess the situation. What else? Is there anything that comes before that? You have to wake up. You have to wake up. Okay, all right. It's a, it's a good answer. Say, say it again. Yeah, and that's where I was going. Because every answer we gave was fine, right? Like, again, you have to have teeth. Doesn't matter if you have a toothbrush and toothpaste if you don't have teeth, right? Listen, whether they're yours or you bought them, you have to have them, right? Can't brush things you don't, okay. So this is going off the rails already. I promise this was not a comedy set. I'm not, I'm not a comedian. Why am I doing this? Well, <clears throat> I went through a task analysis with my brother Alan yesterday. So this is where it all makes sense now. You got your laughs out? Okay. I, I and the other elders, we make it a practice to submit our outline for our series, for our teachings, to our colleagues, right? To go over them, to see if there's anything we're missing, to make sure we're on the right page, to make sure it's congruent with what was taught before. And also give the person who's coming after an opportunity to know where God is leading so that they can start to prepare because we don't want to prepare last minute. So, so there's, a, there's a rationale behind it. Now, at every other church I've been at, I've never been asked to do that. So I've leaned heavily on uh, what I would say uh, from a gift perspective is impromptu speaking. From a not gift perspective is laziness and lateness. But I've been trained out of that, that I recognize the value in preparing early and not winging it. So I submitted my notes, my outline to my colleagues on Tuesday. 
as per requested, and it was silent all week. But I didn't feel good about what I submitted. Can I be honest with you? I thought there was some merit to it. I'm not saying that what I submitted was something that was bad. It's from the word of God. But I just didn't feel right. Something about it just wasn't, uh, just felt like I was missing something, felt like I was just off. And so Alan, uh, throughout the course of the week, says, I can't open the file you sent. No other words, just Alan saying, can't open the file you sent. And me being an adult educator who uh, wants to help and wants to educate goes, okay, well, I should help Alan open the file, not realizing that that was God's open door to me correcting this feeling that I'm having that something about this just ain't right. I couldn't put my finger on it. And so I called my brother and I said, or I texted him first and I said, hey, I sent two screenshots. I, I took pictures of the outline. Hey, I sent those screenshots. Did you see it? And he goes, yes. I go, cool. You got some time to talk? I just want to work through it with you. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I got some time. And so we talked for an hour and 26 minutes and 33 seconds yesterday. And it was after that hour and 26 minutes and 33 seconds that I realized my outline was crap. I mean, no, that's not what it was. That wasn't it. That wasn't it. After talking with him, I realized I had not done the proper task analysis. See, what I intended to give you before was this. I'll give you the small synopsis because we might still touch on some of it next week once we've done proper work today. What I intended to make an assertion of is that the promised land of the Old Testament could be likened to the promised life of today. That as the Israelites entered the promised land, that as I enter into a relationship with Jesus, I now enter into a new life. I have been made brand new. There are promises that come with that life. And so what does it look like to enter that life well? But here's where I was a bit off or maybe a bit later on in the steps. I looked at Judges chapter one, and in Judges chapter one, it says that they failed to remove the idols. And as a result of their failure to remove the idols, God made the people of the land and their gods a thorn in their side. So because I'm likening the promised land to the promised life, I was going to go down a list of things that you need to remove from your life so that you could have the promises of God. <laughs> Made sense to me. But something didn't feel right. And I felt like if I got this wrong, you might experience more condemnation than conviction, more hurt than encouragement, but I couldn't quite conceptualize what was going on in my head and in my heart. But then me and Alan talked and he said, well, you're on the right track. You're talking about branches, but I think we need to get to the root of the issue. Now, Alan and I had different roots, right? But all the same, we came to an agreement that before I could even address the fact that there's idols in your promised life or in their promised land, 
Before I can talk about how we must be cautious and look at the example that our brothers have provided us in the past, our ancestors, and not fail to remove the distractions and the things that would put themselves against the power and truth and might of God, that we need to remove them, before we ever get to that, we have to establish that the person who gives the promise, whether it be land or life, is true. And that what he says is truth. Annie doesn't get a birthday unless at some point you say, you are my God. So she might have gone in with a condition, which I love that you were honest about that. She might have gone in with a condition of, well, if you're real. But at some point for her to have the promised life, Annie must say, you are real, you are God, you are my God, and I will be your people. That must come first. If I don't trust that God is true, and if I don't trust that his words are truth, I will leave idols in the land. Here's why. If we go back to the Israelites, I'll leave them in the land because I think maybe they have something to offer. Because I think that there's some value in having another opinion. At the end of the day, that's what the polytheistic worldview is. That's what, that's what us wanting to have options is, is us thinking that there's something else out there, something else to enjoy. God might not be the only party in town. But if I start with God is true, he is true. Like, he is truth. Not, this, not that he says true things on occasion, but that God is truth. If I can come to terms with that, I'll never seek truth anywhere else. And thus, the branches will get solved because we figured out the root issue. So the stories I was going to mention, I then went back to them, and I looked at them, and I reexamined them again through the understanding that we're not going to focus on how they failed, but rather where truth might have been helpful to them. Make sense? So I want to start off, oddly enough, by reading the first part of uh, the passage that our sister Bree mentioned mistakenly. Because this is where I started to cry. <laughs> You wanted to read Psalm 89, if I'm correct, right? But you started by reading, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And as you were reading, you're like, that doesn't sound right. That's not what I needed. And yet that was exactly what Annie was saying without those exact words. Right? I saw that and I said, wow, that is so cool but it's just words on the page until I accept it as truth. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Not one of the options that saves me. Not a thing that could save me. You, and I can insert carefully here, you alone are the God that saves me. Not you and them. You. So it might have been a mistake, but I don't think God makes those type of mistakes. And I heard it and I started going, oh, gosh, got to use that. Got to use that. You, yeah. And then Annie shares and I'm like, oh, man, I got I to gotta mention that. 
And then Barb says, fix your face. And well, I'm not going to use that in the sermon, but I just thought that was funny. Not that your word was funny, but like I've heard that before. Uh, Pastor Jenkins, when we were at Victory, would always say, are you happy to be here, saints? And everybody would be like, yeah. But I tell your face. Because people would look so uncomfortable and so like unprepared to worship. And he's like, no, well, then tell your face. So I love that exhortation. But I want to go to Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 25. Now, this is not going to be on the screen because I told the media team, since I'm making a last minute audible, do not worry about it. So if you don't have it in front of your face, I will make sure that I put the personal responsibility of putting it on the Facebook group later. Okay, so I'm going to read it to you. If somebody's near you that has a Bible and they put on deodorant and they followed the steps to brushing their teeth, feel free to lean over and look at their text. <clears throat> but we're going to look at Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 26, actually, 26. Now, I initially wanted to talk about this again, to talk about the failure of the Israelites, when in fact... I think there's an opportunity, like I, like I mentioned, to see where knowing truth might have set them free. So in Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 26, it reads, They came back to Moses and Aaron, they being 12 spies that were sent into the promised land, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak, who was a giant. So the descendants of Anak, the Anakites or the Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than us. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim. There, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, and actually, can Judy give me some tissue? Thank you. Actually, we look at that, and where I initially wanted to go was wow. 
how much they failed. What's wrong with them? I don't get it. Why, why are they so scared? And also, whenever I come to this text, one of the things that I come across always at the very end, that last verse, we were small in our eyes and also in theirs. And I thought that was interesting because they seem scared of the giants, correct? I'll ask it again because that was an easy question. So. They seem scared of the giants, correct? So what's the chance that they actually walked up to the giants and had a conversation? Mr. Giant, hey, excuse me, Mr. Giant, son of Anak, <laughs> member of the Nephilim, can you come here for a moment, please? Betty, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. How tall do you think I am? <laughs> it's probably not a conversation that happened. But their fear was so real to them that it changed how other people saw them. It changed how they saw themselves. It changed how they saw the land. And I could spend a whole sermon talking about their fear, but I'd rather speak about the truth that they should have used in that moment. You see, we always talk about how we can find truth in Scripture, and that's true, but... I'm here to tell you the Israelites did not have like a full NIV available, but they did have their testimony. They did have how they saw God move faithfully before, near and dear. They saw how he parted the Red Sea. And they saw how he gave them Uber Eats from the sky called manna. And they saw or they would see how he was going to part the Jordan. And they saw how Egypt was brought to its knees, the mighty empire of Egypt through plague. Also that they'd be set free from 400 years of slavery. They saw all of this. We read about it. They literally experienced it. But they forgot truth in that moment. And it was to their downfall. See, later on, we learn that they stayed in the wilderness an additional 40 years and that those who had the bad report and those who believed it never entered into the land. Now, if you're not careful, you could think, well, God seems pretty vindictive. God seems pretty mean, right? A carnal mind might have you approach God from an incorrect perspective if you saw that. But that's not what we should glean from it. Instead, we should understand that God wants us to know who he is. And the promised land, whether they entered into it or not, would not have been promising had they not known that the promiser was true. I'll say that again. The promised land would not have been promising to them had they not first known that the promiser was true. So they never entered in. They never got to see it. And we won't be able to see all of the great things of God if we don't first establish that what he says to me, what he has promised is true because he is truth. I don't want to waver in that. I might not be able to fully accept this particular promise just yet. That might be something I'm working on. But do I believe in the one who made the promise? 
Because Alan and I also talked about this whole promise of healing, right? I mean, I still experience certain ailments that sometimes make me doubt him as healer. But the fact that I have not fully embraced or experienced that promise doesn't negate him as true. So whenever I find myself wavering in that area, or you find yourself wavering in a particular area, a particular promise of God, we have to go back to where we understand that he's true. What is the last truth that I accepted? What is the last thing that he has said to me that I have seen proven out? Where is the last piece of evidence of his faithfulness? Because if I can go back to that, that will strengthen me and it will free me so that I can go back to this and approach it correctly. I can't experience this unless I understand the one who gave me this. So with the Israelites, imagine if they said, there are giants in the land, the sons of Anak, members of the Nephilim. But I remember God parted the Red Sea for us. And not for nothing, if a giant had to fight a sea, who would win? Man, I know it sounds ridiculous, right? But if you were playing a game and you could choose the character, the giant, or you can choose the character, the sea, which one's superpowers would be more impressive? Who do you think's gonna win? I'm willing to bet you would think the sea. And, and so it's simple, it, it sounds silly, but, but they missed out on thinking, where has God shown himself faithful before? Where has God shown us to be our defender before? Where has God showed us to be his pro our providence before? Where has God shown us to be our, our provision? Like, where has he shown us this? Because they have saw it, and so have we. We have saw the faithfulness of God. Some of the testimonies were shared today, and I know there's more, and so I'm going to give you a heads up. I want you to actually do some homework this week. Better yet, I'll tell you about the homework now. I would like this week for you to go on the Facebook page, and I'll get us started, of course. But I'd like each of you to share a promise of God that you have seen proved true, that you have experienced, that you have laid hold of. Now, understand. I don't want you giving paragraphs on paragraphs on paragraphs on paragraphs. I want you to simply share that truth. And if someone wants to understand the context of it or why you know it to be true, you guys can meet offline. That is the homework. So I'll put the prompt up saying, hey, what? please share one promise, because I know some of y'all have all these promises you want to share but we're gonna leave room for those who may only have one to work with. I want you to share one promise that God has given you that you know is true, that is evidence of him being true. And Kelly, when you provide something, and Molly, somewhere else, says, that's amazing. Tell me more. Y'all can meet for coffee on your time. Understand the assignment? We good? Because I think it's important that we spend time reflecting on the promises that we've experienced in our lives on our own time. But I think it's also important that we reflect one with another, that we encourage each other in the word, that we encourage each other with the experiences we've had in God. 
And I don't think we do enough of that outside of this meeting. But then there came another reminder from Judah right before I stood up where he says, hey, the teaching doesn't stop today. It happens on Monday and throughout the rest of the week in your homes and at Commonplace or whatever other coffee shop you go to. We're team Commonplace in my household, but wherever you go to drink your coffee, the teaching happens there too. And so Lori can talk about the promises and the faithfulness of God and someone else might learn something that might set them free. Because in John 8, 31 to 32, we learn that the truth will, not might, will set us free. And we learn in Psalm 119, this is something Alan gave me to work with yesterday, verse 30, that the truth will enlighten or will shed light to or will make understanding possible. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And it's not the scripture insulting you saying you're dumb or you're dull. It's saying to the simple in faith, to the, to the person who's just working with it saying, God, I need you to explain this to me. I'm not coming at it from a theologic perspective. I just need you to break it down for me. If you come with a simple faith, the unfolding of his word will give light to the darkest of situations, to the most confusing. His word makes everything plain. His word gives wisdom. So if we spend time talking one to another, we might find that there's situations we've been struggling with for far too long in the promised life that we don't have to anymore because we hear about the testimony of others and we reflect on the testimony of ourselves and we read the word as truth. We have to make this a practice because I could tell you about all the cool promises of the promised life next week, but if we don't start with understanding that the one who promised us said life is true, we won't experience any of it. We'll miss out on it. We won't have the full promise of it, the full enjoyment of it. The Israelites had time in the promised land that was good, but they also had time where the same people that they couldn't properly evict put them in chains, stole their food, took their women, burned down their towns. So I don't want, this isn't a fear tactic, I just don't want you to experience hardship that is unnecessary because we haven't first accepted God is true. We haven't been freed by that. If we have that, we can meet any challenge that we're gonna face. Jesus even says you're going to face trials, but he tells us to fear not because he's overcome the world, but I need to believe that he's actually overcome the world or there's gonna be a lot of reason for fear. You can go and watch the news and you can find reasons for fear. You can look at social media and find reasons for fear. You can text one of your cousins or think about what's happening in your household and you could have reasons for fear. There are challenges all around us, but if I believe that he has overcome the world, I can meet all of them with confidence. Not in myself, but in him. Do I actually believe that he is the overcomer that he says he is? And how does that govern my life? I want to take you to Proverbs chapter 3 for a little bit more insight. Now, normally, for whatever reason, whenever I'm referencing this, I always go to verses 5 through 6. But I read today for a little bit more context, and I was like, wow, there's some good stuff all around it. So we're going to read the first eight verses, if that's okay. 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. I want to emphasize truth there. Not that kindness isn't important, but if you're going to underline anything, underline truth. Because we keep saying that he is truth. His word is true. The scripture is true. So we don't want to let that leave us. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Here's the verse I always go to. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You've heard me mention this before, and I always say it the same way, so I'll say it again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not some of your heart, not most of your heart, all of it. Which seems like a daunting task, but if I just simply accept the kernel of truth that I have right now, I can build upon that and build upon that and build upon that. So this is a lifelong process. I'm not saying if you don't trust in all your heart right now, it's all over, you're done, you've lost. We can add more truth to what's in our heart right now. So what do you have to work with? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, not some, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. I mean, this seems very repetitive, but this is all mistakes that we make, unfortunately. And this is what the Israelites made. They were wise in their own eyes. They were right to see those giants and be scared. They were right to see eight-foot people, 10-foot people walking around in fortified cities. Right? They, they were right to see chariots with iron. They were right to see all of these things that would scare them. Heck, the grapes probably scared them. They were so big. Right? It wasn't unreasonable that they were scared. I'm not saying if you ever have fear, you're not a Christian or something's wrong with you. No. In some situations, it is reasonable for you to have fear. But the reason why they had fear and it stayed there is because they were trying to assess the situation with their own eyes. They didn't see it through the eyes of God. Had they saw the fact that God was looking at those same giants and saying, this will prove my might and my glory to you, that you might have a stronger relationship with me, that you might know me as protector God, that you might be able to wade deeper into the waters that Bob told us about two weeks ago, that you might be able to get off of the ankle water and the loin water, and you might be able to press out and be swimming in the faithfulness of God. If you saw that land through his eyes, you would say, oh, there's giants, but my God is bigger. There's giants, but my God parted a sea. There are giants, but my God made the sun stand still later on in the text. If you go beyond Numbers 13, the people of God are at war with their enemies. And they find that when the sun was out, they were winning. And so God extends the time that the sun is there so that they might finish vanquishing their enemies. That is the God you serve. The God who gave Hezekiah more life. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. The God who raised Lazarus from the dead. The God who raised you from the dead. Because spiritually, you were cut off and not his. That God, he wants you to look through his eyes and see your situations differently. See them through his faithfulness. See them through his kindness. See them through his trustworthiness. So do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord 
and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Let's go also to Psalm 19. I'm going to pull this one up because I didn't give this to the team. I thought this was really good. Psalm 19, starting at verse 7. It says it a little bit differently. The law of the Lord is perfect. I'm reading this in the Amplified. The law of the Lord is perfect, flawless, restoring and refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are reliable and trustworthy, making wise the simple. Here goes that simple word again. The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That is what God's word is. Whether it be written whether it be the physical manifestation of it that we find in Jesus, Jesus is the word. Whether it be what he speaks to us now through Holy Spirit, his word is sweeter than the honeycomb. His word is true. His word is to be desired. His word gives us freedom. He being the word gives us freedom. We need to approach our situations understanding that if we do, Answering the promised life will be so much better for us. We'll experience so much more. And there's no condemnation in that. And if you don't understand it, what's great is he's willing to teach you. Tom, you don't have to figure it all out. Again, going back to the homework assignment, I'm inviting you to talk to somebody this week and not stop this week. And every week we're reminding you about different things that have happened in the text because we believe that this book is true. But we get to work on this all week and you don't have to work on it alone. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a comforter. And when the comforter comes, he will remind you of what? Truth. So even when you find yourself a little fuzzy and your memory isn't working that great, He's given us someone who will remind us of all the truth of who he is and what he's done and what he is doing for you now. Some of you probably feel hopeless because you think you have to do it on your own, but you just don't. That's a lie from Satan. He would love to have you think that you have to do this on your own, but you don't. And when armed with truth, with armed, when armed with him, I don't care if it's giants. I don't care if it's a tax bill. I don't care if it's a structural shift at work where they're changing who they're keeping and who they're not. You'll be okay. I was just talking to the wife of a former colleague and I asked her how is his new job. I was so excited to hopefully hear some good news because he had gone through quite a bit over the last few years um, being let go from our mutual employer. And his wife said, well, they let him go. And I was a bit confused because I just talked to him recently and he told me he just got a raise. So I'm like, um, he got a raise and a promotion, but the company went in a different direction. 
That's something that would maybe shake a person, right? I mean, like, he lost his job. But when you approach that situation with truth, you know, well, God provided me a new job before. God helped us pay all of our bills before. We never went without before. So what of that testimony tells me he will let me down now? And you can apply the same thing to any of your situations. What of your testimony before makes you think that God will let you go or let you down now? Fear becomes very irrational when you approach it from that perspective. And I want us to have that level of freedom. I want to have that level of freedom. Even if y'all don't get it, like I want you to get it. Hopefully you want it too. But I want it just for myself. I can reflect on the last few months thinking about things at work, and I know I was not approaching it from the freedom that God gives. And I'm not going to overly lament on that, but I want to let that be instruction for how I move forward. That I wasn't living free as I could, but I will going forward. And that should be something that, as you know me as your brother, you should be holding me to. If you hear me ever talk in a way where I don't sound free, say, brother, you are free in this issue and that issue and that issue too. And here's how I know. We should be reminding each other of how free we are by reminding each other of truth. This is a collaborative effort. We're a body for a reason. This is not a collection of a bunch of unique families. This is a body of believers. We always talk about that you owe each other truth. You owe each other freedom and you can offer it, not because Kim can set me free, but Kim can remind me of the one who, cut, who, who does. So Kim, you have a responsibility to me and I have a responsibility to you. And the same is true of me and Michael and the same is true of me and Jameson. And it goes down the line that I owe you that as your brother. So I wanna always be reminding you because Caleb, son of Jephunneh and Joshua, son of Nun, they tried to, to tell their brothers, hey, God's faithful. He'll deliver this land into our hands. We should surely go and take it. Take it. We should go into it. It's ours for the taking because he said so. They remembered the promises given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And in Genesis chapter 17, where God is saying, you will be my person. And there will be descendants from you as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars and the galaxies. That you'll have all of these people that come from you. Nations will come from you. And I will give you this land. And there I will be your God. And you will be my people. And I'll protect you. And I'll provide for you. Joshua was recalling that as well as his experience. Caleb was recalling that promise as well as his experience. And that's what informed them. These giants can't stand in front of us. So I should be reminding you, Michael, when we have conversations where you don't sound so free, and when you're telling me all about how tall the giants are and how big their shoes were and how they were Nike shoes and not Under Armour and how they had this color belt on and you're describing your giants because I say that jokingly, but that's how it sounds when we're talking about our days and our problems. We're so descriptive of how, how our problems look. We're so descriptive of how crazy they are, how scared we are. But imagine if we were that descriptive of our God. Imagine if we talked about our solution the way we talk about our problems. How much more would we experience the promised life? 
So, Michael, the next time it happens, not saying you're actually doing it, you're not in trouble, you're just close, I can see you, I know your name, so I was like, should have sat there, I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> but the next time you come to me and you're talking about your problems with great detail, I'll respect you and let you finish, but then I'm gonna say, Michael, so let's take some time talking about your solution with just as much detail. And I'd be shocked if you still feel afraid. I'd be shocked if you still feel bound. I'd be shocked if you're not equipped to handle those problems differently. If we took the time to actually work through, this is our God, this is what he has done which is a perfect transition, though I'm not the one leading it, so this is the cue to the person who is. It's a perfect transition to talking about communion because this is what we're supposed to do in remembrance of me. We exercise the sacrament of communion. We do it because remembering is a way of informing what the next thing will look like. We do it because remembering gives us strength, remembering gives us joy, remembering gives us peace, remembering gives us rest. And the moment I start to feel like I'm too dirty for him, I remember how he made me clean, how effective it was. The moment I'm lacking in peace, I remember how he took on everything that I might have peace about everything. And he won. So I'm gonna invite my brother up and we're gonna transition into communion. And next week, we'll go a little bit deeper into what the promised life is now that we've laid the groundwork of the promised life will be promising if I believe in the one who gave the promise. Amen? Thank you, family. Amen. Let's, as we transition into this time of sharing in the Lord's Supper, um, I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But this whole idea of not forgetting truth, this is... What we're about to do here was one of those healthy practices that the early church were given to rehearse truth. This is one of those places where it wasn't just, and when, it, when you hear that phrase, remember me, we're not, it's not like an Ernesto de la Cruz kind of, remember me. It's not one of those kind of things. It is him saying, I will be there with you, and I want you to bring the reality of what I have done clear into what you are doing right now you're not just gathering because you got a church building to meet at now think back to the early church and i want to set the context for you because sometimes when we read our bible we're like oh it says that you know so we are in verse 23 of chapter 11 and it says for i received from the lord that which i also passed on to you that the lord jesus on the night which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So this is after eating their food. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. This is not a one time kind of deal. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. How many times have you heard that passage of scripture? What you don't realize is this is the first recording of this exercise, of this practice in scripture. 
The Gospels weren't written yet. People don't know what happened at the Last Supper. You do. You just read the book of John. But as far as the church is concerned, 1 Corinthians 11 is the first time someone is making commentary on what happened the night that Jesus was betrayed. So he's saying this is something that was passed on. And wherever Paul went and started a church, he says, guess what, guys? I want you to do this as a as something that you do together. This is something that the Lord revealed to me, and I'm passing it on to you. So this isn't Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or Matthew, Mark, or John passing this on. You're talking about a guy who wasn't part of the posse. You're talking about Paul, who was a guy who was one who was not part of the, the disciples. And he's saying, this is something the Lord showed me so that you participate in the reality of what Jesus has done. This is a truth-forming mechanism. Isn't, this isn't a, remember me, let us all take the bread. No, it's, it's, not, it's not that kind of a deal. It's not just some sort of little sad song we sing and we like, everybody remember. The context of this passage The church is in division. He's like, you guys, it's almost better that you guys don't meet together. He says that in the verses just before. He's like, it's almost like whenever you guys get together, it's like more of a problem. Because you guys come here and you don't eat the Lord's Supper. What you guys end up doing is you you guys come here like as if you don't have homes to eat in. What's wrong with you guys? There are people in the back who don't get any. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's the tone of this passage. And then he goes into this little discourse where he says, this is why I'm reminding you of why we do this. We share in the one body of Christ. Chapter 12, if you read in your Bible, which is the next chapter down. Okay, it's always important to read scripture in the context it was written in. Because everyone loves to pull these verses out. In the context of God has made you one body with Jesus being the head. So when his body was broken, he was broken so that you might be one. Not just your body being whole. Everybody loves to receive wholeness for their body. That wasn't the point. That's part of it. But he was uniting something that was far bigger than just your body. He was giving honor to the parts of it that did, not, that did not have honor. There are people in here who do not have honor or positions of authority. You don't have to be a pastor in this church. You don't have to be a leader in this church to be a valuable member of the body of Christ. And he says, I died that you might be made one. So whenever you do this, I want you to do this as a joining activity, as one that says we are one together in Jesus, but more importantly, that we share in his victory. He has made a covenant with us. That is why we're different. So judge correctly. So as you eat today, as you drink today, I want you to make an assessment of not, am I holy enough? Jesus is the one who makes you holy. Donovan just went through all this very clearly. It's not about whether you can get the steps right. The issue is, is the one who joined you to himself true or not? 
if that is so, do this in remembrance of him. Do this in bringing the reality of Jesus was broken that we might be made whole. He made a pledge in his blood that says, I am sealing this completely. You are mine. So when the church of Jesus Christ walks through the waters, he will be there with us. When we go through the fire, he will be there with us. So who among you is sick? Who among you is weak? Who among you is needy? Who among you is depressed? Who among you is poor? Body of Christ, this is why we were made one. This is why we rejoice when people are rejoicing. And when someone is struggling, we go alongside them. We don't sing a happy song for them. Do you understand? This is what it means to be joined in Jesus. So as you drink this, I hope you're taking on a new perspective. Sure, there are so many things for you to receive personally. And I don't want to ever negate that. But I want you to understand, when the church was given this practice, it was a truth-rehearsing practice. It was something where they would say, together, regardless of our background, regardless of whether we were Greek before, or whether we were a woman, or whether we were a child, regardless of who we are, we have found our unity in Christ. We have been joined together in Christ. So, as we eat this little piece of bread... It's significant because this little piece is just a mere part of what the whole is. We are part of Jesus. And he is our head. And he is where our life comes from. He is where our wisdom comes from. So whatever it is that you are in lack of, remember God has put people around you. These are the hands and feet of Jesus. So receive from them too. Care for one another as Jesus cared for you. So in the same way that Jesus laid down his life, you too lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Amen? So receive this and say, Lord, we thank you for joining us together. And as you open this juice, you're receiving it as, Lord, this is something that's a done deal. Your blood is precious. You sealed it. There is no word that can go against a decree of heaven. And this is something that he had paid for in blood. He said, I will not change my mind. I will not go back on this. So what I have done forever stands. So what we are receiving is a finished work. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the work of the cross. We invite the work of the cross, Lord God, to be manifest to each one gathered here. Anyone online too, Lord, that they would see the reality of what you did. When you made this covenant with people from many nations, tribes and tongues and different backgrounds, you joined us to yourself. And we make this declaration today in remembrance of what you have done. We are yours. We are entirely yours. Lord, do with us as you will. Send us out as you will. Lord, we are here. Your servants are listening to obey. Lord, we ask that the reality of these things would be made fresh for each one in this room and online. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.